0: Hey everybody, welcome to West Seattle Christian Church Online. My name is Worth. If you are new, welcome and thanks for joining us. If not, welcome back and happy Mother's Day. Well, today we're going to take a little journey, a little jaunt through the scriptures, starting all the way back in Exodus with the story of Moses to begin with, and then landing in our destination in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 23. The itinerary is going to include uh, a little bit about the choices we have before us when we hear or read something Jesus says, and then decide how we're going to respond to that. And this happens all the time in scriptures, by the way. God gives some commands to his people, and then they have to decide if they will obey those commands or not. And basically, the choice boils down to following what the world around them says is right, or following what God says is right. In the Old Testament, it was often the choice to follow the ways of other gods or other tribes of people or choosing to follow God's path towards true life and real life. Jesus offers the same choice in his Sermon on the Mount. And before we get to his sermon, we'll jump back and take a look at another Sermon on the Mount, and that, was, and that mountain was Mount Sinai. But first, uh, here's a few opportunities to take advantage of. Uh, as I've been saying for weeks now, on may twenty fourth we'll be hosting a Zoom discussion that is really important. And we're going to be uh, looking at Latasha Morrison's book, Be the Bridge. You do not have to have read it to join the discussion. So even if you haven't read it, please join us. It's all about racial reconciliation and healing in the church and outside of the church, and it'll help us have a biblical framework uh, for restoration. And uh, we hope that you make that a priority, and I hope to see you there. So, jump uh, onto our website find the racial justice link on our homepage, and from there you'll find the sign up form and it's pretty self-explanatory and though subject to change our second announcement is that um our next in-person service is going to be on sunday june 6th so please hop online and pre-register today because that'll help us for all of our setup and to plan accordingly once again that service will not be um There won't be kids' City, it's family style, we'll have stuff for your kids to do and you won't want to miss it. So here we go. Way back in the Exodus, Moses gives God's people the Ten Commandments and they enter into this covenant with God. And at the end of Moses' sermon, we read this. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. That's in Exodus 24 verse 3. Well, Jesus picks up and emulates this same type of delivery and rhetoric in his Sermon on the Mount. And we've just spent many weeks talking about how to be salt and light and how to reset our spirits on the ways of God. And now Jesus starts to conclude his sermon, and he does this by giving us several images to consider. The first one is about different types or paths uh, and fruit. And then it's about those who aren't obedient, but they appear like they are. And then he delivers this mic drop moment where he gives this parable about the wise and foolish builders which you can read on your own let's read part of that now enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it watch out for false prophets that come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they are ferocious wolves And I do mean it's simple. Jesus didn't give this teaching so that we can philosophize about it. It's not about self-help. It's not an idea that we can attain or some moral or ethical theory. Jesus's conclusion is really simple. And it reminds me of James chapter 1, verse 22, which says, Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. I love the message version of that same scripture. It says it this way. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you are a listener, when you are about anything but letting the word go in one ear and out the other act on what you hear those who hear and don't act are like those who glance in the mirror walk away and two minutes later they have no idea who they are or what they look like so put plainly he just wants us to do what he taught and he expects us to and we know this to be true just like the Israelites knew it to be true when they heard Moses delivered the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai they replied as one Everything the Lord has said, we will do. But Jesus knows that we have this tendency to say that we will do something and then not follow through. So he gives several examples to help his conclusion kind of resonate with the audience that he was speaking to and to us. He knows that agreeing with what he says and having the right belief, which is called orthodoxy, is not enough. He's interested in right belief and right behavior as well, which is orthopraxy. Here's one way to illustrate it. Orthodoxy minus orthopraxy is hypocrisy. And orthodoxy plus orthopraxy, that equals Christianity or following the way of Jesus. So one thing I want to draw your attention to about Jesus's Sermon on the Mount is that the scriptures tell us that great multitudes were following him and listening to him when he gave this teaching. So it's incredibly interesting to me that the very first thing Jesus does to wrap up his sermon is to tell people they can choose between the wide and narrow paths. Basically, he's like, you're either going to do this or not. What is the wide path? You know, the bad path, the one that many follow and that leads to destruction. Well, it's obvious that Jesus was very popular at this point in his story, in his ministry, but it's like he doesn't know the first thing about marketing, or maybe he does, It's as if he values something else entirely than what the crowds think of as success. Maybe it's because he's focused on faithfulness rather than what the world thinks, uh, what looks like success or effectiveness. But right after preaching this fantastic sermon where he's followed by multitudes, he basically says popularity is for the birds. He just dismisses it outright, saying that many will follow it and it's going to destroy them. And he calls his followers to a more difficult and narrow way. And this is really important for Christians and churches, groups of Christians to understand because we live in a day and age of whatever is best-selling. We live in a culture whose modus operandi literally is consumption, a consumer culture. And marketers know if they put the label on their product that it will sell more. Labels like, this is the most trusted or the most watched or get your best life here ever, you know. All these ads that just gnaw at our insecurities on our human nature that's a bit broken and leads us for into longing and acceptance. So the message that marketers send us are meant to comfort us as consumers so that we'll feel like we're part of the in crowd when we get the newest gadget that everybody has and the reason we want the popular consumer product whatever it may be is because having it not only means we've succeeded in being in or part of the popular group but it helps us feel like we're legit, like we have legitimacy, like, like we matter now. And Jesus is all the time standing over by himself saying, deny yourself and follow me. And so the question is, do you realize that you can consume Christianity like a product? In your own story of following Jesus, your personal Christian life, do you follow leaders or ideas simply because they're the ones everyone else is listening to? Because they're the popular ones. And I I really have no problem telling you that there are many popular Christian teachers and preachers, pastors out there uh, at churches, big and small, with humongous reach on social. But when I read or hear what they say about following Jesus, it doesn't quite compute. It doesn't jive. If Jesus is really easy to follow, that kind of might be a problem. So, are you growing? Are you growing in your ability to discern if they are actually following Jesus, his way, his words, and his works. It's super important. You know, it's hard for us now, and it was hard back then. Take a look at John chapter 6, verses 60 through 69 sometime, and look at the gist of how hard it was for people to follow Jesus. And it still is. But let's move on. The narrow way that Jesus talks about, what's that all about? What, what is that way like? Well, I'd like to suggest that even though the way may be narrow, Uh, which suggests it's hard physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. I don't think that this way means that you or I are all alone. It's not about isolation from our culture. We covered that last week. We aren't called to be by ourselves like monks where we're secluded away. I really like this quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Life Together, where he says this, If there's so much blessing and joy even in a single encounter Of brother with brother how inexhaustible are the riches that open up for those who by God's will are privileged privileged to live in the daily fellowship of life with other Christians I think this is also shown for us in the scriptures over and over again Jesus wants us to be in community with one another we see it in how he put together his team of disciples and when he sent them out to do his work he didn't send them by themselves but in pairs of twos And there are all of these one-another passages in the scriptures as well to love and encourage and take care of each other. It, It illustrates that we're not alone on this narrow path. And probably the most powerful realization is that Jesus is there with us. The narrow path is an invitation to follow Jesus in his footsteps as he guides you on the journey of his ways and works and participating in his mission with him to make all things new. Again, Bonhoeffer, in his book Discipleship, he has a great way of saying this. He says this, as long as I recognize this road as the one I am commanded to walk and try to walk it in fear of myself, it is truly impossible. But if I see Jesus Christ walking ahead of me step by step, if I look only at him and follow him step by step, then I will be protected on this path. So we know that Jesus expects us to live this way of life that he spelled out for us. All the blessed are those statements, the salt and light, the you have heard that it was said, but I tell you statements, all the stuff about love your enemies, how to pray, how to prioritize what is really important in life, and the fact that we're not alone on this path, this journey. And then he says, the proof is in the fruit. I bet you thought I was going to say pudding, and well, that would work too. But I like Jesus's emphasis on the organic here. Uh, he says, here's the ugly truth. Basically, this is how I would interpret it. We've had to hear about too many church leaders over the years who as it turns out, have lives that are pretty messed up. From the outside, it looks like they've accomplished everything, but on the inside, they're hollow and dry, and eventually it leads to destruction, just like the scripture has said. Let's look at Jesus's words here again. He says, watch out for false prophets that come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So Jesus is telling us in no uncertain terms that we will know what kind of person we're dealing with by what they produce. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit, as some versions put it. Now you might say, well, I heard about this huge church with a pastor and there's thousands and thousands of people and this guy's written several books or this gal's written several books or something like that. So everything looks good on the outside. But what about the inside? Yeah. I think the problem is that we have been culturally conditioned to measure people, including ministry leaders, by their professional success. In other words, we assume which is always a dangerous pastime, assuming, we assume incorrectly that an effective or popular leader, as defined by by our culture, that they must be godly. But here's the deal, and it's always true. Character matters more than accomplishments. Generosity matters more than effectiveness. Mercy matters more than power. Honesty matters more than impact. Gentleness matters more than influence. Faithfulness matters more than popularity. Humility matters more than relevance. If you're wondering where I got that, it's from one of the first church planters and pastors of the early church, a disciple of Jesus named Paul. And he wrote these words in Galatians 5, uh, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And this is what matters on this path with Jesus, where character and behavior, they have to go hand in hand with what you believe in your head. You can't separate them. If you divorce your character from your accomplishments, then your accomplishments mean nothing. This is why you can have a popular leader with a huge ministry that's also a diseased tree that produces rotten fruit. And it's because of this, if you take a look back through the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus zeroes in, he focuses in with like a laser, in on all these inner competencies of our faith, things like honesty, hypocrisy, anxiety, anger, lust, generosity, love, and peace. And in reality, he's just tapping into ancient godly wisdom. Take a look at Psalm 1, for instance. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. If we focus in on these inner competencies that are in Galatians 5 and that Jesus is focused on in Matthew 7, 15 through 20, we will become healthy trees. Healthy trees that produce healthy fruit. What we don't want to be is what I like to call Christmas tree Christians. So growing up, and I worked in a Christmas tree lot for a few years selling Christmas trees between like Thanksgiving and Christmas. And we all love Christmas trees, don't we? When we walk into uh, our favorite grocery store, department store, or Costco, and we see the Christmas stuff up, we're like, oh yeah, this is great, feels good. And then we realize, wow, it's early September. (laughs) But here's the deal. We love them because our eye is drawn to them in ways that other trees can't even dream to compete with. There's ornaments and garland and tinsel and lights and candy canes. And we make fancy tree skirts to do what? To cover up the fact But these Christmas trees are not rooted. They're not planted in soil. If they are real trees, not just like a fancy fake one, then the only way they keep from drying up is by soaking the trunk in a bowl of water for a few weeks. And here's a pro tip from my experience in the past. If you want that tree to last longer and you bought a real one from a lot, cut an inch off the trunk and before you stand it up and put it in the water, do that and then mix sugar into the water, pour a can of Sprite in there with the water and the tree will stay green and fresh longer. But but what's the point? What's the point that I'm serving up here? Here it is in all its unvarnished truth. Christmas trees are dead. They are corpses. You cut down a tree and then you dress its corpse with candles. <laughs> Olaf describes this perfectly in his song That Time of Year in Disney's Olaf's Frozen Adventure. And all the decorations, let's just call them fake fruit, if you will. That's what they are on the tree. So eventually, we remove all the fake fruit and we haul that dead carcass of a tree out to the street to be composted. Well, how does that translate for all of us? How do we actually become fruitful? Very clearly, it's not about what is visible to others on the outside. If we care more about this than we give into, if we care more about the outside than we give into peer pressure and social pressure, and we become Christmas tree Christians who are more interested in displaying fake fruit, which can look like we're beautiful and successful. Jesus is pretty direct about this later on in Matthew 23, verses 25 through 28. Maybe you heard this bit before. It's where he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind, Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. None of us wants that for ourselves, right? We want to be a community that's robust and flourishing, a fruitful orchard rooted deep in the grounded and good soil of Jesus. And that's how we do it. We actually don't focus on looking like we have fruit on our branches. In fact, we don't focus on the branches at all. What we do instead is concentrate all of our attention on the roots and how deep they go. And we want them to grow as deep as possible in Jesus. In fact, this is what Jesus is hammering into his disciples' souls and ours as well. Good trees automatically produce good fruit. When they have cultivated deeper roots in good soil... The way he explains this is that we have to abide in him. He goes, kind of pun intended here, really deep on the subject in John 15, which I hope you read on your own sometime soon, maybe even today. But uh, what he's talking about is much more than self-help and self-improvement. It's not about you're just deciding to be good or be better at, this, uh, at these internal components and characteristics of Jesus. You can't just will yourself to be this way through ingesting the right information or going to worship every Sunday. It's not about a program or investing in the right type of Bible class. Jesus basically says that that the fruit a tree produces is contingent upon or determined by the identity of the tree, which is its character and its integrity. An orange tree doesn't make pineapples, and grapevines don't grow watermelons. Likewise, there's no amount of Bible classes or sermons or knowledge or effort that's going to change what a tree produces. The type of fruit just springs forth based on the type of tree. And this is what's really frustrating and I think kind of hard for Christians because we've been conditioned to expect growth based on just showing up and learning more facts, more info, kind of like osmosis. Here's an example. If we we talk about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, we're expecting some type of program we can get involved in that will help us learn what we need to know that will change our character and competencies so that we can develop these traits in our lives, these fruits. But Jesus says, that's kind of not how it works. Which is why he ends his sermon by saying, you know, with the, with the foolish builders, the wise and foolish builders, did you hear what I said? Okay then, just do it. What he's really saying is, don't try to improve the fruit at all. Concentrate on the transformation of your identity. Maybe a better way of saying that is this. Our old selves must be uprooted and a new self planted in God. We need to be anchored deeply in God where his spirit can nourish us and help us thrive And when we do that, we will grow almost effortlessly, naturally. In other words, joy isn't produced in your life just by sheer willpower. I often see people saying this phrase on social uh, frequently these days, I choose joy. Well, I think that's great, but you can't just will yourself to be joyful. Intentionally making time to spend with Jesus, though, more and more regularly, I think a byproduct of that is joy. You can't just succeed at being patient by seeking out scenarios that require patience. If you wanted to do that, you could just call customer service hotlines or just call your cable TV provider all the time, and you'd be so spiritually patient, right? No. Spend intentional time with Jesus, letting him take care of you as you abide in him, rest in him, talk to him, read scriptures, and let him speak to you. This is like planting yourself by a stream of water, and then the fruit will come. So I want you to ask yourself these questions as kind of an internal inspection or or evaluation of your rootedness, if you will. And depending on how you answer, you might need to seek more time with Jesus, our gardener. He might need to do a little pruning, or he might want to pour some water or fertilizer or miracle Grow on you. So here are the questions. Am I pursuing intimacy with Jesus? Do I make enough space for prayer? Do I still feel pleasure in life? Am I afraid or nervous? Am I obedient to God's promptings? Am I seeing personal revival in my life? Am I living in the power of the Spirit? If you don't know the answer to these questions, I suggest you re-listen to them via our podcast or YouTube, and spend some time with them. Inspect your identity and ask what God is saying to you. Do a little quality control. Have you been spending all your time decorating yourself with fake fruits, like a Christian Christmas tree? Isn't it time to be uprooted, be planted deep in God's orchard? I think so. Until next time, I'm Worth Wheeler with West Seattle Christian Church Online. Stay rooted and deep and produce good fruit, my friends.